Week 12, three months so far of doctrines. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? Doing all right? Holding it together? Good, good. You know, I, uh, I was putting together the uh, slides for this week, and I, I happened to see the slide where it talks about the, uh, in, uh, in the essentials, unity, and the non-essentials, liberty, and, and all things love. And I thought, you know, it would be a good morning to go through that again, just to, just to remind us. So these are, uh, these are our, our mantra this year as we uh, go through all of this. Because uh, when you're talking about doctrine, doctrine has a tendency to, to establish truth. And when you establish truth, sometimes what we see or what we used to believe is exposed for what it is, and it's not truth. And that's hard. It's hard for people. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to, find, to, to you know, have believed something for a period of time, and then for all of a sudden it's changed. You know, it's not, it, not that the truth changed, but my perception of what is really true changes. And you go, oh, man, really? You mean I was... I was... I was mistaken, exactly. It's really hard. And if, we, if there's things that people hold so dearly that they're not willing to be open to what's truly true, then there's something wrong. That's, that's the problem. But some people won't. Some people won't move. But on, on many things, there is a couple of ways to look at it. But when it comes to the essentials, and we've talked a little bit about the essentials, and people have asked me for, to give them a list of essentials, and you know anything to do with Jesus, salvation, you know, how people are saved, why we're saved, what, who God is, who God isn't. Those things are essential. That stuff is what's really important. You know, what, what kind of uh, communion cup we use, well, you know, how, how we do this, what kind of music is played, those aren't essentials. You know, and there's a bunch of other stuff. But in the essentials, there, there, it, there isn't any room to, uh, for opinion. It needs to be the truth. The truth is the truth. And we've been talking about that. The Bible is the Bible, and it's the Word of God. It truly is. And we talked about how we can know that. How do we, how do we know that systematically by the evidence that we have? That God is God, and He's all-powerful, and He's all-knowing, and He is all of the attributes that we've talked about who God is. And then we talked about, this month we've been talking about who Jesus is. And, this, and today is where we're going to make a transition, and it's an exciting transition. It's a transition from who is God to what has God done for us. What is this that he did? Today we're going to talk about the works of Christ. We talked about two weeks ago, we talked about his offices. What, he, you know, what was his position and what did he do, or uh, not what did he do, but what was his position when he was here on the earth and before and now and then after. But now we're going to talk about what specifically he did and what he specifically did affects us directly. It needs to affect us directly. And so this is an exciting day, an exciting transition. Next month we're going to be talking about you, who we are, who man is, what, what we're made of and what we're not made of. But we've been talking about Christ and the, today's week 12 is the work of Christ. So we've been making a thorough study of his deity, his humanity, his unique nature, all of those things that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity. We also talked about how he came in the flesh. He came incarnate. 
You know, that's one of those big buck and a half uh, theology words, incarnate. But it's important to understand what that means. He literally came in the flesh. The problem, the reason we have to make a big deal out of that is that some people say, well, he actually didn't come in the flesh, he came in spirit. Well, if he didn't come in flesh, then he didn't die. And we'll find out today, if he didn't die, all of this is worthless. He had to die. He had to do what he did. What he did is vital. It's it's absolutely essential for our eternity. And so, until we understand who Jesus is, we won't understand what he did or why what he did is so important. So, we've been doing that. We've been studying about who Christ is, but now we're going to understand about or talk about what he actually did. The stages of Christ's work. In theology, and and here's where we start getting into some of these theological concepts and and, and terminology that maybe in the past has caused you to go, oh, what is that supposed to mean? But I want to explain it as simply as possible because it's really not that hard. It's just big words that somebody used. If we understand what the big word means, then we understand the truth of what's going on. It's been traditionally explained that there were two stages of Christ's work. First, what's called his humiliation. And the second is his state of his exaltation. He did two things coming to earth. He did two things in his ministry, in his life. One, he was humiliated. And two, he was exalted. Okay? So, what do those mean? And let's, let's look at each of those. And each one of those has a number of steps within them. The first is the incarnation, or the humiliation of incarnation, of his incarnation. Incarnation, again, the theological definition is the doctrine that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, assumed human form in the person of Jesus Christ and is completely both God and man. And if, you, if you've missed that week or if you missed that teaching, we talked about that extensively. That we, he had to be both all God and all man for all of this to for any of this to work. And so we talked about that. I encourage you to go back. It's online. We can have CDs. We've got it all over the place. It's good to have that stuff. The verses that highlight what he became, some of them are this, John 1:14. And the word of God or and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But some of the verses that it talks about in the Word, talks about what he gave up, where he came from, and what he gave up. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself... By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When Jesus was in heaven, when he was, was with God and he was, he, was, he was in fellowship with God constantly, he was free. The freest of free. He, he, you can, we can't even, in our humanness, understand how fulfilled and how free he truly was. When he came to the earth, though, it says that he was born of a woman under the law. He was the same expectations that we have 
that are, that are expected of human beings. And God expects human beings to be perfect. But we can't. But Jesus came and came under that same law that we're under, or we were under before we're born again. We're now past that, if you're born again. But he came under that same law, and he fulfilled it perfectly. That was, that's part of what he did, and why it's so important, is he came under that same law and fulfilled it absolutely. Only he could do that. There's verses that talk about who is worthy to open this scroll. Who's, who's worthy to experience this? And, and, they, and, and their people were afraid that, well, who is worthy? Jesus was worthy. He was the only one worthy to come and to fulfill that law completely. So what Jesus came or gave up when he came to earth was immense. You think about this just for a moment. He came from a position of equality with God, which included the immediate presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit, and as well as the continuous praise of angels. He came to earth where he had none of this. That alone, just that movement alone, from being the absolute of all absolutes, of perfect, of amazing, the fulfillment of everything, he gave that up. He emptied himself of that and became like you and me. What in the world was he thinking of? It's huge. The, the, the amount of, of distance he traveled, not in natural, but in, in supernatural uh, increments, the amount that he lowered himself, he emptied himself, he became a servant. Even if Christ had come to the highest splendor that earth could afford, the descent would have still been immense. But he didn't. He came to the lowest of low. He did not come to the highest of human circumstances. He came as a slave, as a servant. He served people. He came to a common family in a little obscure town in Bethlehem. And even more striking, he was born in a very humble setting of a stable and laid in a manger. He was born under the law. He who originated the law, who was the Lord of it, became subject to it. Bethlehem. Never Bethlehem. I've had a lot of people ask me I want to go, and I want to go under certain circumstances. Someday I'll get to go. But what I've heard of Bethlehem is it's nothing special. And especially back then, it was really nothing special. It was kind of the lowest of the low. And the family that, was, that they were, he was born into couldn't even get a place at the inn. They were pushed out. Some, some theologians say that they were even kicked out by their own family. Do you know that when they had to go, they had to go where all their family went? They had to go to Bethlehem for the census. Well, their whole, both of their whole families were there, and yet there was still no place for them to stay. And she was pregnant. That doesn't matter. I mean, you know, for those of you who have daughters, if your daughter is pregnant and she comes into town... Are you going to let her stay somewhere in your home? They didn't. They kicked them out and made them stay at the stable. The lowest of the low. The other, remember when the Pharisees were talking to Jesus later on in his life and they said, and, and you know, he was starting to, his, his ministry was becoming more and more effective and, more, and bigger and bigger and more influential. 
And one day the Pharisee said, oh, we know who your mother is. Because they knew he was born out of wedlock. Which is, you know, here it's, okay, whatever. It's a stake, you know, it's part of life. Back then, it was the lowest of the low. Your mother should have been killed. That's what they were thinking. When Jesus came to this earth, he didn't come to accolades. He came to the humblest of humble. He was humiliated, you know, not in the word that we're thinking of, but in many ways he was. He was counted in many ways about, as the lowest of the low. Galatians 4, 5 says, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might, have, might receive adoption as sons. Jesus emptied himself of equality with God by adding or taking on humanity. In doing so, Jesus gave up the independent exercises of his divine attributes. So when he came to this earth, it, it, it isn't that he couldn't do those things that he could have being God. He decided not to. He chose not to. Remember when Jesus was being taken away by the guards and Peter took out the sword and cut off the guy's ear? Jesus healed the guy, put the ear back on. That's cool. But he says to Peter and he says to the disciples, don't you realize I could call 12 legions of angels or whatever he said? I could call legions of angels to come and, and stop this, but I choose not to. He willingly laid down his rights as God to become us to become just like us. He could exercise them only in dependence upon the Father and in connection with possession of a fully human nature. Both wills, the Father's will and His will, were necessary for Him to utilize His divine attributes. He had to be humble. He said, I don't do anything I don't see my Father doing. If God didn't say to do it, the Father didn't say to do it, Jesus wouldn't do it. It's not that he couldn't do it, he wouldn't do it. He humbled himself. The same way we're supposed to humble ourselves. That's how we're supposed to live. We can do anything, can't we? We can go out and do anything we want right now. I can, go do, I can do pretty much anything. But I can't because I've chosen to humble myself to God. You're the same way. There's all kinds of things we could do, but we won't because we want to be led by Him. We want to be led by the Father. And Jesus showed us how to do that. When He had all the, you know, had all the ability in the world, He chose to be humble to His Father and only do what He told Him to do. There was then an immeasurable humiliation involved in assuming human nature. When Satan said to Jesus, Hey, you're hungry. I know, you know, if you're really God, why don't you just make some bread out of that stone? Could Jesus have made bread out of the stone? Absolutely. He could have. At that moment, he could have made, but he chose not to. Why? He says, he said, I only do what I see the Father doing, and I'm not listening to you. Remember the last person that Satan said, oh, that food looks good. Remember what happened to them? Same deal. Jesus was, was fulfilling the very things that Adam and Eve blew it on. Are you hungry? Oh, that looks good. No. He, Jesus said, he says, 
man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's, he's establishing right away, I'm not here of my own free will, or I, I mean, I'm not here to do my own free will, I'm here to serve the will of the Father. That's how we're supposed to live. He's showed us, but he, he had to humiliate himself, he had to lower himself to us so that what he does next is possible. His death. The ultimate step downward in Jesus' humiliation was his death. He who was the life, the creator, the giver of life, and of the new life which constitutes victory over death, he became subject to death. That is absolutely stunning. He is life. When Jesus said in in John 10.10, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No, that's not 10.10. Is it 10-10? Somebody help me. No, yeah, no. Whatever. There's a verse that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. (laughs) See, I'm okay. Paul, every once in a while, said, there's a verse somewhere that says, and he would quote it. What? Was I right? Well, of course I was. Oh, oh, I see. (laughs) I'm right about being wrong. Well, that's good, you know. That's the, that's the first step, is admitting that you're able to be wrong. That's, that's huge. That's big. John 14, 6. So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He who was the life subjected himself to death. Powerful. Absolutely. He, humili- he lowered himself in humility towards God to do his will, even unto death. He who committed no sin suffered death which is the consequences, consequences of the wages of sin, of sin. By becoming man, Jesus became subject to the possibility of death. That is, he became mortal. And death was not merely a possibility, it became an actuality. And Jesus not only suffered death, he suffered humiliating death. The worst part, or the, the Bible says that the, the, uh, the most cursed way to die is on a tree, is hung on a tree. The way God chose for him to die was the worst possible death. And not only was it painful and horrible and everything else, but he was exposed to all, hum- or all humanity who were mocking him, calling him names, dividing his clothing. By some accounts, he was hung there naked, absolutely exposed. There couldn't be a more humiliating way to die, especially when you're God, when you're the life. He lowered himself to the lowest possible place. Death seemed to be the end of his mission. He had failed in his task. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus came and he preached. He preached for three years. He was 33 years old. He did amazing things, all kinds of miracles, all kinds of powerful things, and he preached some amazing words and changed people's lives. Talk about a, a successful ministry. But after three years, he died a humiliating death, and his, his followers were scattered. If you were to gauge a human ministry here on earth by that, by, by, by a human standards, Jesus' ministry failed. All of his disciples scattered. 
He died a humiliating death. He's done. Praise God. God is not into the way, gauging things the way human beings gauge, gauge things. The resurrection, the exaltation. So his humiliation was, his birth was lowering. His life, he always lowered himself, even at the, the Last Supper, which we celebrate during this Holy Week. He even took off his outer garments, wrapped his, his garment around like a servant would do, and did the lowest serving of anyone, any of the servants that were in the house. The lowest servant in the house had the job of washing feet. Because people walked around in sandals or barefoot, and they stepped in stuff. And so the lowest servant was always the one who washed feet. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. And he said, the way I'm doing, the way, what I'm showing you tonight is the way you should live your life. He humiliated himself. He lowered himself to the absolute lowest position. But he overcame death through the resurrection, which was the first step back in the process of exaltation. Because the resurrection is so important, it's, it's occasion, it has occasioned a great deal of controversy. There were, of course, no human witnesses to the actual resurrection. Sort of. And what I mean by sort of, if you go to Matthew, I believe it's ver- or chapter 28, Matthew 28 says that there were Roman guards stationed around the tomb. And when the rock rolled away, and there was a, an earthquake, there was, you know, that they witnessed that. They didn't see his body rise. But they witnessed the moment. And it says when they witnessed the moment of his resurrection, they all tipped over. They were as dead men. They just fell to the ground. Later they lied. Because they, the, they went to the priest and said, Hey guys, uh, he's gone. And the priest said, Oh, don't worry. Tell, tell, uh, tell everybody you fell asleep. We'll pay for you and we'll take care of it. Lie. Don't tell them what you saw. And that was the, was the report that was carried on for years later. But no one saw his actual physical body go from dead, laying there dead, to rising to life. But the tomb was empty. And his body was never produced. Second, a variety of persons testified that they had seen Jesus alive. Hundreds. Upwards of 500 people testified that they had talked to Jesus, that they heard him, spoke to him, and saw him do things after his resurrection. The most natural explanation of these testimonies is that Jesus was indeed alive again. Many of these witnesses lost their lives because they wouldn't recount their testimony. And many of the people who were taking their lives, the ones who were persecuting them, said, I mean, these people must really believe this because they're allowing themselves to die. They will not change their story. So these testimonies weren't just, oh, let's make up a great story. This will be fun. This will be exciting. Let's, let's get people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. No, they laid down their lives to stand for that testimony. There is no better way of accounting for the transformation of the disciples from frightened, defeated persons to militant preachers of the resurrection. The triumph of Jesus over sin and death was the fundamental step in his exaltation. He was freed from the curse brought on him by his voluntary bearing of the sin and of the entire human race. 
The Bible says that Jesus subjected himself to the curse. He, so, he, he took on sin. He who knew no sin took on the sin so that when he died with that sin on him, it paid for it once and for all. Praise God. Praise God that he did that. The next step in his exaltation, what he did here on earth, is, was his ascension. The first step in Jesus' humiliation involved giving up the status which he had in heaven and coming to the conditions of the earth. The second step in the exaltation involved leaving the earth and reassuming his place with the Father. And you can see all kinds of verses there. You can look those up on your own when you get an opportunity. He, he on many occasions, foretold of his return to the Father. Luke gives us two different accounts, one in Luke 24, one in Acts 1, of his, his ascension into heaven. Interestingly, though, do you notice that Jesus rises up to the clouds? He rises to the clouds, he disappears, they're all standing there watching. A couple of angels show up and say, what are you guys still doing? You're standing, he's coming back. Where is heaven? Has to be, because, you know, we've sent out probes and they haven't run into it yet. So why did he have to raise, why did he raise from earth into the sky? If heaven is some, it, heaven's obvious, he didn't just keep rising past the moon and then past the, you know, the sun and then. I don't know, I just, that's a great question. <laughs> It's one of the questions you have to think about this week. It's an interesting thought. Why did he have to do that? Other than it's, the Bible says that's the way he's coming back. That's how we will see him again. And Tuesday may be the day that it happens. I don't know. I'm joking. Totally joking. The whole blood moon thing, everybody's been following that. Where was I? One cannot get to God simply by traveling sufficiently far and fast in a rocket ship of some kind. God, in, in a different, God is in a different dimension of reality, and the transition from here to there requires not merely a change of place, but a change of state. The significance of the ascension is that Jesus left behind the conditions associated with this life on the earth, thus the pain, both physical and psychological, of earth is no longer his. The opposition, hostility, unbelief, unfaithfulness which he encountered have been replaced once again by the praise of the angels, the immense presence of the Father. What a contrast to the abuse and insults he endured here. There were definite reasons why Jesus had to leave the earth. He had to prepare a place for us. We see that in John 14, 2 and 3. Another reason that he had to leave for the Holy Spirit to come. The sending of the Holy Spirit was essential. For whereas Jesus could work with the disciples only through external teaching and example, the Holy Spirit continues to work within us, within them and within us. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God could be present with them. Thus, God, or thus Jesus could say that he would never be, or that he would ever be with them or with us forever. So Jesus' ascension meant or means that he has no, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand is a place of distinction and power. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God should not be interpreted as 
him resting or inactivity. He's doing something there. It's still part of what he does. His work, his work is completed here on earth, but his work is not completed. He is continuing to work. He's continuing to intercede for us. The right hand is also the place where Jesus is ever making intercession with the Father on our behalf. Intercession means he's praying for us. He's praying for us. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. He's praying for us. The Bible says, Jesus said, he says, you no longer have to to ask me for things. You can ask the Father. So we pray and we can ask the Father. We don't have to go through somebody else. We're not even going through Jesus. We're not asking Jesus to get his dad to do something for us. We pray right to the Father. And, but at the same time, Jesus is praying for us. He's asking God to move on our behalf. His intercession is part of his work that is, continues on even today. His work is not done there yet because once again he's coming again. Scripture indicates clearly that Christ will return at some point in time in the future. The exact time is unknown to us. The exact time is unknown to us. One more time. The exact time is unknown to us. And if you miss that, at that point, his reign will be total. He himself has said that his second coming will be in glory. The one who came in lowliness, humility, even humiliation, will return in complete exaltation. Philippians 2.10 says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, Jesus is coming back. That's part of what he's still doing, what he, part of his work. The functions of Christ, and I'll go through these very quickly. You can look at them more d- uh, deeply on your own this week and in your small groups. He continues, or he revealed God to us. He revealed God to us by what he said, but also by how he lived. Was God, how he lived, revealed to us who he was. What he did is exemplary or exemplifies who God is. We actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the, the offices, the things that he did. Well, he lived his life in such a way that it revealed to us who God was. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. He was revealing the nature of God by his life every day that he was here. The rule of Christ. The Gospels picture Jesus as the king, the ruler over the whole universe. Jesus himself said that in the new world, the Son would sit on a glorious throne. Matthew 19, 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He claimed that the kingdom of heaven was his. The Son of Man, Matthew, 8, or Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all cause, or causes of sin and all lawbreakers. The kingdom of God over, the, over which Christ reigns is present today in the church. So he rules and reigns today through us. 
in us and through us. He's the head. We're the body. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So his ruling and reigning is just beginning. Or it, it, it began 2,000 years ago, but he does it through us, should do it through us every day. And then the reconciling work of Christ. And here's where we start to make this transition. The reconciling work of Christ. He is interceding for us. He's a reconciler. That is his ministry. He's interceding for us. The Bible records numerous instances of Jesus interceding for his disciples while they were here on the earth. John 17 is, is, the, per, is the, ver, or the chapter where he's praying for his disciples, but he's also praying for you and I. He's praying for us. He, he, he doesn't just stop with the ones that are there right at the moment. He prays for the future, and that's us. What Jesus did for his followers here while he was on earth, he continues to do for us. Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Whenever there is an accusation against you, Jesus is right there saying, uh-uh doesn't stick doesn't happen anymore no 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 satan you don't get it they're mine you don't get to accuse that one you don't get to accuse that one nope 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 he is there interceding daily for you on on behalf of you part of it what she, what he's doing is telling god nope he's mine she's mine they don't satan doesn't have anything on them Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not only, or not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus presents his righteousness to the Father for our justification. He also pleads the cause of his righteousness for believers. Well, while justified, while previously justified, continue to sin. Even though you may still sin. Now I know I'm, not, I'm talking to the choir here. None of you have to deal with this. But if anybody by, by tape or by video is listening to this, if you are born again, when you are born again, if you still sin, which happens, Christ is right there saying that one's paid for too. That sin is covered. That one's gone. It doesn't count. Neither does that sin. That doesn't count either. That one over there, that doesn't count either. He continues to justify. There is nothing, nothing that counts against you anymore. Man, that's amazing. Absolutely wonderful. There is another, even more fundamental aspect of Christ's reconciling work. The aspect upon which his intercession is based. It is the atonement... And here's another one of those big words that we really do have to understand. We need to understand this deeply. It is the atonement that we come to, or that we come to the crucial point of Christian faith. Here's the definition of atonement. Atonement is the doctrine concerning the reconciliation of God and humankind, especially as accomplished through the life, suffering, and death of Christ. What did Jesus do for you and I? What he did was 
go all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated. God says, I can no longer be. They can no longer be in my presence. I can no longer come to them physically. We are now separated. And that separation wasn't just during life. When someone died, they were totally, forever separated from God. What Jesus did is when he came, he took on that sin. He died for that sin. Is he then once and for all, for anyone who would accept it, removed the separation between man and God. He atoned, he, cha- he paid for completely. Remember the last words he spoke on the cross. The last words he spoke in English is, it is finished. It is finished. In the Aramaic language, the actual words he said, he, he said an Aramaic, Aramaic phrase. The phrase is, tetelestai. The last word that Jesus spoke on the earth before he died was he, he shouted out, tetelestai. Tetelestai was, an, was, a, was a trading, a, a bargaining, a, 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 a transaction word used in the marketplace. If I was going to buy Bob's cup, and Bob, I said, Bob, I want to buy your cup. Bob, I'll, tra- I'll, I'll buy your cup with my phone. Here, just for the little while, okay? Just, you know. <laughs> he gave me the cup. I gave him the, 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 the phone. We put our hands out. Tetelestai. We both said, Tetelestai. It's paid for. It's paid for. It's finished. There's nothing more separating him and I. And look at that. We're, whole, we're, we're together. We're in agreement. That's what Jesus... Give me my phone back. <laughs> yeah, he wants his coffee back. Yeah, exactly. What he did is he atoned for. He paid for fully anything that... Any sin that anyone had ever committed. Anyone had ever committed. Anyone that anyone would ever commit. The only thing is they have, to, they, have to, they have to choose. They have to say, that's for me. They have to say, I'm in. That's the difference. But what he did was complete. Nothing more has to be done. You don't have to be good enough. Jason, you don't have to be good enough. Praise God. I don't have to be good enough. Jesus completely atoned for my sin. Completely. Any time Satan tries to tell you, well, now you blew it. Now you really blew it. God can't forgive you for that one. No, 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 no. To tell us, die. Atone for completely. That's what, when Jesus, that was part of his work, but he also continues to remind Satan, God, us, that that's exactly what he did. He does that in, uh, through intercession. The doctrine of atonement is most critical for us because it is the point of transition where we shift our focus from who God is or who Christ is, the nature of Christ, to his active work in our behalf. Here, systematic theology has direct application to our lives. The atonement doesn't just cover over the sin, it also covers over how you live your everyday life from here on out. You can change. Not a single praise God or amen. Let me try that again. It not only covers over the sin, I mean, not covers it over, it demolishes the sin, 
it also gives you the daily power to not live that way anymore. It doesn't count. Like my kids say, it doesn't count if I have to remind you, okay? (laughs) Our doctrines of God and Christ will color our understanding of the atonement. For if God is a very holy, righteous, and demanding being, then humans will not be able to satisfy Him easily. And it is quite likely that something will have to be done in our behalf to satisfy Him. That's exactly what happened. He is perfect. And praise God, He made a way for that to be satisfied. On the other hand, if God is an indulgent, permissive Father who says, we'll have to allow humans to have a little fun sometimes, that it may be sufficient simply for Him to give us a little encouragement and instruction. It's the former. He needed to die for us. He needed to make a way where we could not do it. If Christ were merely human then the work that he did serves only as an example. He was not able to offer anything in our behalf beyond his perfect example of doing everything he was required to do, including dying on the cross. If, however, he is God, which he is, his work for us went immeasurably beyond what we were able to do for ourselves. He served not only as an example, but as a sacrifice for us. The doctrine of humanity, and here's where we're going to switch now and start talking about you and us. The doctrine of humanity, broadly defined to include the doctrine of sin, also affects this picture. If human beings are basically spiritually intact, they probably can, with a bit of effort, fulfill what God wants them to do. If, however... We are totally depraved and consequently unable to do what is right no matter how much they wish to or how hard they try. Then a mere radical work, then a more radical work had to be done in our behalf. So now we start talking about who we are. We know that God and Jesus Christ whom he sent was absolutely perfect did everything right. He sent, God sent him to be that atoning sacrifice, that sacrifice that if it wasn't for Jesus, we're all lost. Absolutely, totally all lost. But he did send him. Now we're going to talk about us. And let me ask you this question. If you flip to the last page, there's about three quarters of you here who have the wrong back page. Because I was a little late in getting my sermon ready this week, and Pastor Greg always second double-checks it and makes it perfect and then prints it. I'm about three-quarters of the way printing, and I realize that the last question is wrong. Is man basically bad, or is man basically bad? How many of you have that on your... The answer is yes. (laughs) The question should be, is man basically good, or is man basically bad? About a quarter of you have that one. That's when I saw it. I'm reading through it. Oh, you've got to be kidding. But I'm not going to throw away 75 copies of uh, what I've already done. So I just thought I'd mention. See, I'm not perfect. There we go. And Jesus is going, it's okay. It's all right. Is man basically good or basically bad? We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Please stand.
Jesus did all of it. He did it completely. He did it all the way. We can't do it. We cannot live our lives the way we need to, the way we're supposed to. And he knew that. That's the amazing part. He, he saw that, and he loved us even before. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us. He chose when he knew that huge portions of the population that would ever live from, from his death on, he knew that huge portions of his creation would reject him. But he did it anyway, because he loves people. And he wants to show, it's in his nature, he couldn't help but come and die. It's who he is. And he did, and when he came and he lived that perfect life, he was the only one who could. And he died by allowing himself to be died. He, he willingly went to the cross. Nobody made him do it. And while on the cross, he paid for every sin. But you have to make the choice. You have to decide, is that for me or isn't it? Do I, do I accept that or don't I? Because I can't make that decision for you. I can't even make that decision for my kids. That's, you know, if, you've had, if you have kids, that's a scary one. You'd love to make it for your kids, but you can't. I can't make it for my wife. I can't make it for any, any loved one or anybody that I love. You have to make that choice. And you have to be the one who says, okay, from here on out, you get to be Lord of my life. But it is a choice. It is a choice that you have, have an opportunity to make right now. Whether you're listening by CD or whether you're watching by television or whether you're here right now. That invitation is always on the table. It's always there. God is always saying, come here, here it is. He wants you a part of his life. He wants you a part of his kingdom. But you have to choose. You have to say, God, I repent. I'm turning around. I'm not going to do things my way anymore. I'm turning around. I'm going to let you do it for me. I accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross. I accept that blood. I accept that forgiveness of sin because there's no other way this is going to happen. And from this day forward, Jesus, you get to be Lord of my life, which means he gets to be in charge. When he leads, you follow. When he speaks, you obey. That's what it is. And then when you mess up, he's going, it's already taken care of. I got it covered. When you make a mistake, it's atoned for. But if we don't accept that, if we don't make that choice, then you've already made a choice. You've made a choice to reject it. So this morning, I give you that opportunity. I give you the opportunity to make that choice. I'm going to prepare in just a moment. And at any moment, you can say, God, I'm in. God, I repent. I change the way I'm thinking. I'm changing the way I live. I, I, I'm following you from here on out. You get to be Lord of my life. And the Bible says that when you do that, that's it. You're in. For some people, it's too easy. Wow, come on. There's got to be more to it. Nope, it's that easy. It really is. It's cool. Praise God. I give you that opportunity this morning. I'll, I'll pray in closing. Could I have the prayer partners come forward, those who are praying for people, if you'd come forward and be ready? These folks, if you have any questions like about that, they can answer those questions. If you have a need for prayer for anything, whatever it may be, these guys are ready to pray for you and with you.
But if this is the morning, you say, you know what, I'm in. I, I'm in. I'm not going to run anymore. I'm not going to ignore God anymore. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to let him be Lord of my life. Let these people know. Because the Bible says that we need to confess it with our mouth. We need to tell somebody, hey, this is what I just did. This is who I am now. Because when you do that, the words of our mouth are powerful. So I encourage you to tell them, tell somebody else, tell somebody you came with, whatever it is. But tell somebody. Let's pray. Father, praise your holy name. Praise your holy name. Father, even as we study these things out, it just it brings about that praise. It, it just it, it, it causes me to worship you even more for what you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your life, for your obedience, your death on the cross, and your resurrection. Thank you, Lord God. Father, I pray this week that everywhere we go, every person that we meet, everything that we do reveals you to the world around us. Father, I thank you for your kingdom continuing to advance in our lives and around the world. Thank you for it, Father. Praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.